You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Forefront. Good, Good to see you on this fall day. Uh, I am Reverend Josh Raderly. I serve as one of the co-pastors of community and teaching here, and we are in the fourth week of a series called We Will Not Be Silent. Um, feel free to go back. We've highlighted the voices and experiences of women, POC, disabled folks, and this morning focusing on LGBTQIA. So I just wanted to give a quick disclaimer, uh, just kind of or both a trigger warning and a content warning. Um, so there will be some elements of sexual content that I'll talk about, um, reparative therapy memories, and then the naming of assault and abuse as we reflect on the loss of lives for Transgender Day of Remembrance. So hold that in whichever way. Take care of yourself or your children in this space. Um, if at any point you just feel like you need to step out or tune out or whatever that may be, um, just know there's space out in the, for, in, the hall, in the foyer, in the restrooms, you can grab a drink, whatever you may need. So just take care of yourself. Don't feel like you have to sit or listen or agree to anything that's said here at church. Um, this is a space for you to, to also care for your soul as we care for a community. Amen? Amen. Um, so when I was uh, a freshman year in high, high school, my mom found out that I was gay. And she found this out because she catched me with another guy. Um, and I'll stand up at that moment. Um, <laughs> She found out that I was with another guy. Yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, how I've gotten old on my birthday today. Um, but I love it, though, still, nonetheless. It's my Jesus year, y'all. I'm 23. I'm resurrecting. Um, so my mom found out I was gay because uh, basically my best friend told her I was sneaking boys in my um, basement window. And so my mom, like, busted me and was like, okay, like, we probably need to work through this. Like, this isn't good. And so together we agreed that I would go through reparative therapy programs. Um, so we, I started a reparative therapy program, and, and, like, I went through three of them. And I knew they weren't working. I wanted them to work. And finally I just lied and said they worked and because I just wanted to be done with it. And so as much as I wanted it to work, I just remained silent about the fact it wasn't. Not long after this, um, in, when I was in high school, my pastor was asked me to accompany him on a hospital visit for pastoral care. I was always very involved serving, volunteering in the church, um, interning, shadowing the pastor, even as a young age. And so we went, to, we went to do the visit, and then while he had me trapped in the car where I couldn't get away or out of the conversation, he asked me, Josh, do you have attractions towards men? I, of course, was afraid, so again, I fell silent and I lied, and I said, no, of course not, because I knew that if I spoke up, it would mean the end of any leadership opportunities now or in the future in the church. And then in my senior year of high school, while working my third reparative therapy program, I found myself gene jamming with somebody. If you don't know, if you don't know what, do you know what gene jamming is? Yes? Okay, great. If you don't know what it is, Google it, because it's too much right now for the recording. Um, Just Google it. And so I immediately, the, the person who I was gene jamming with immediately felt guilty, and Angela said today, she's like, I don't think I've ever heard the words gene jamming in a sermon before, like, this is it. So um, everyone's got their phones out. <laughs> I'll give you a moment. Um, 
And so the guy that I was gene jamming with, he felt guilty about it, and he decided to go and tell his dad, confess to his dad, and his dad was a pastor. So his dad called me up and was like, I want you to meet me at my office right now, and if you don't, I'm going to call your pastor and tell him what you all did. So I drove my car over to the church office. He and his son were there, and he had basically berated me about how disgusting this was. And then he had his son pray for my deliverance. Yeah. I said nothing. I was afraid. I was scared. I was scared of if I spoke up, what he would do to hurt me and out me and cause issues for me in my life. I was just trying to do what he said so that he would leave me alone and we could put this behind us. So after he was done praying for me, he said, now you need to go and tell your pastor what you did. And you have a week to do it, and I'm going to check in with him to make sure that you did it. So still after doing all that, he still told, wanted to tell. And so because I wanted to have some power, some agency, I went and I told the pastor. Um, and the pastor of that church, in many ways, sort of is in den was in denial of what I shared with him because of what that would mean. Um, and about three months later, I was let go. I was on staff. It was my senior year of high school. I was on staff as a youth director. And I was let go for budgetary reasons and told I needed to leave silently and to not cause a stir. And so again, I was silenced. And I left silent. You know, it was at the hands of the religious elite that I was continually silenced and traumatized. They instilled a fear in me that, quite frankly, muzzled my voice and my sense of agency over and over again. And I have fought so hard to find my voice again, to find the courage to speak up again, especially since it had just become so normal to just be silent, to not speak up, to just try to hope for the best and hope it all works out. The men who were entrusted to love and support me scarred and scared me. At the core, I think they prized legalism and following the law over grace. At the core, I think they saw the world as so black and white that there was no way they could see the rainbow in between the spectrum. I was an unfamiliar color. And they didn't know what to do with that. I was too queer. Queer just means different. In a similar way, we see in our text, Jesus encounters a religious expert today in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. The expert who is an expert in the law, um, typically experts in the law were just considered lawyers because the, the state as well as the religious world were so united. And so they would have been very well versed in fighting and debating the religious law. And this is a conversation that transpires. The expert in the law asks Jesus this simple question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not asking this because he's interested in it. He's asking because this was very normal in law and practice, uh, as well as within religion, to sort of have these casual conversations about what does scripture mean and how do you get there and how do you experience eternal life. And so it's more of a religious debate he's, at, he's inviting him into. What is you? What do you think? What's your opinion? And we'll see how Jesus engages by reversing it and asking him, well, what do you think? So this is what he says. Jesus' response in verse 20, 26 says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? <laughs> so he asks him a question and is like, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read that? The man answers, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So he, he quotes the Hebrew Bible back to Jesus. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. 
The man wanted to justify his actions, though. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? In essence, he's asking, well, who is excluded from my love? Right? I can't be loving everybody. Um, and so how does, how does this play out? Like, who, who do I not have to love? Who am I not obligated to? So Jesus responds with a very steady answer. In verse 30, he says, well, listen to this story. A man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant then walked over and looked at him, looked at him, lying there, but then also just passed by on the other side. Verse 33, then a despised, or I might say queer, as indifferent, a despised queer Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Remember, I'm just pause there for a moment. Compassion and empathy are different things. Compassion pro- co- propels us to, uh, to action in a way that maybe empathy doesn't. Um, so I, I want us to kind of think about it in this, in this way of this de- definition. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, I was going to read this later, but I actually kind of feel like maybe it's, it's necessary now. Um, so... I want to actually draw the definition between empathy and sympathy. Hear this quote by, by Rolasco. Empathy is shown in how much compassion and understanding we can give to one another. Sympathy is more of a feeling of pity for another. Empathy is our ability to understand how someone feels when sympathy is our relief in not having to face the same problems. You get it? You see the picture a little bit more there? Let's keep reading in this story. So he's moved with compassion, or one might say empathy, in this moment. And so he, he goes over to him, he soothes this man's wounds with olive oil and bandages them up. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he would care for him. The next day he handed to the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Verse 36. Now which of these three, Jesus asks, would you say is the neighbor to this man who was attacked by bandits? The man replies, the one who showed him mercy. He gets it all of a sudden. And Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. I can imagine many of us are familiar with this story, but I want to queer it up a little bit, okay? This story continues to play out, I think, in our world today. Just like the nameless character in this story who's attacked by bandits, all we are told is that he's a man. We are not given any more context than that. Just as, the, as, just as he is left for dead and beaten at the side of the road, just as he is ignored and left nameless, so too are trans and queer folks whose voices cry out often for help and go unheard. And whose voices and names go unnamed and lost and forgotten because their lives are taken and their families have disregarded them and don't even know they're missing because they have no connection. They are overlooked and forgotten on the side of the road in the name of religious elitism. Trans and queer folks often are unnamed and unidentified, voices silenced as they are, succumbed to senseless violence, stripped of their dignity and their belongings, mocked and wounded, left dead or half dead on the side of the road, pleading for help. And so today, we say some of their names. Later in our service, we'll see a video of, of trans folks who have lost their lives in 2023 Unfortunately, it is 25 transgender lives that have been lost just so far this year in 2023. But a few that maybe be, might be or might not be some notable names for you 
throughout history that have lost their lives. One of those is Brandon Tina, assaulted, gang-raped, and then stabbed to death. Matthew Shepard, robbed, tortured, and tied to a barbed wire fence and left to die. Tony McDade, misgendered, attacked, falsely accused, and then fatally shot. Dominique Remini Fells, her mangled body was found on a riverbank with both her legs severed. Jennifer Laud, found with her head in a toilet bowl and died because of drowning. We know from the human rights campaign that at least 25 transgender and gender nonconforming people's lives have been tragically and inhumanely taken through violent means, including through gun and interpersonal violence in 2023. But more than that, we have an even more staggering statistic that 88% of these victims that died this year were people of color. And 47% of these victims with the known killer were killed by a romantic or sexual partner, friend, or family member. Sometimes the people closest to us, sometimes the people that we love the most, are the people who cause us the most damage, the most rejection, the most harm, both physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. It's often not just the person you pass on the street, it's often the person who's in your home. These acts of senseless violence, these acts of, of commonality. It was interesting in the New Living Translation when I read the story of the Good Samaritan, it actually says a Jewish man was on the side of the road beaten up by bandits. Now it's interesting, I went through and I read several different translations. The New Living Translation was the only one that specifically said it was a Jewish man. None of the other translations get that specific. I wanted to take some time and, and to dig into why that, why, why that might have been. And in the original text, there seems to be some nuance around the word man and who, if it was referring to a, a Jewish male or not, or just a male generally. But it's interesting to think about the fact that, that if it was a Jewish man that Jesus was saying when he told this story, his own people, the, the priest and the priest's assistant, they overlook his, their own people. And yet the Samaritan, who would have been hated by the Jewish man laying on the side of the road beaten up, stops and has compassion for the person who would have caused him much harm throughout his life. Sometimes it's the people who should see us and love us and be present to us the most who cause us the most pain and suffering, who cause the most senseless violence. And let me tell you, sticks and stones may break your bones, but birds, words do hurt you. I had to ask myself, what, what would make somebody just walk by? Why, why would these priests and these assistants just walk by? What, what is Jesus trying to maybe communicate in this story? I think maybe they, they prize purity over love. And why I say that is because they upheld the letter of the law more than the spirit of the law. In Leviticus 21.11, the Levitical law, Leviticus was written basically for the religious elite to, to know how they were to practice holiness laws when they were conducting themselves in the temple and doing religious things. But it was also for them to know what standards to hold their people to. And this is what one of the expectations was in Leviticus 21.11. He must, priests, must not defile himself by going near a dead body. He may not make himself ceremonially unclean. Interesting. I wonder what day it was when these priests were on their way through their day. Was this the Sabbath? Were they headed to the temple? Were they headed to make offerings? Were they headed to do anything? And they thought, no, no, no. If I touch this body that might be dead or it might die while I'm caring for it, it's going to throw off the whole schedule, the whole plan for the day. And I'm going to be ceremonial and clean. I'm going to have to go through all these rituals to make myself clean now. And I won't be able to do this or that. And so I'm just going to overlook that because I just don't have time for that today. I just can't go there. That's just not in the cards. That's not the plan. You know what? He probably got himself into some trouble. He probably did something he shouldn't have done. You know, he just deserves it. 
Someone else will take care of it. Somebody else can do that who doesn't have to worry about maybe having to walk through some ceremonial and clean laws. There's also interesting, I was finding some, some, uh, some uh, ceremonial laws for uh, Jews or Jewish, Jewish elite leaders and priests that aren't in scripture that also talked about the handling of blood, particularly women when they menstruated. They weren't allowed to come to the temple for several periods of time. But this was also true for priests. If they were to engage with blood outside of the temple where they would offer sacrifices, they were also considered unclean for periods of time. And so here's this man beaten to the point where he's got blood all over themselves. They don't want to make themselves unclean. And so they just walk by. When I first moved to the city, um, I'm sure you probably, those of you who didn't grow up here, sorry, Jonathan. Uh, you, 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 you probably are keenly aware um, of your surroundings when you get here, right? I mean, all of your senses are going off. You've got people begging on, in the parks, people sort of like kind of losing their minds sometimes on the subway or maybe even sleeping on the subway. You have the evangelists passing out their tracks trying to convert you. You have people crying babies. You have folks stumbling around drunk. You have people playing their music at full blast for everyone to hear. Um, you, you have a variety of things. And so when I first got here, like, my senses were super intense. Now, I've been here for two years, and I've learned how to turn off different senses, right? I'd be like, mm, that smells weird. Turn off my nose. Breathe through my mouth. <laughs> oh, that's so loud and obnoxious. Put my earbuds in, okay? Oh, that's some really weird things happening down there. Next, next cart, let's go further down, right? Like, or just tune that out. Just like, let me just smell things. Let's not use my ears right now, right? Like, whatever it is, my sense is, oh, I'm just going to close my eyes and meditate because that's some weird stuff, right? Whatever it is. And so I've learned to manage my senses to just block it out. But when I first got here, I was not so good at that. I was, like, overwhelmed by everything. And Austin was all like, don't look, don't stare, you're drawing attention. They're going to come over here. <laughs> And so he taught me how to just kind of like block it out. Um, and I still look sometimes, and he's like, God. <clears throat> or I'm like, do you smell that? He's like, no, because I'm breathing through my mouth. <laughs> but when I first got here, within the first six months, uh, I was on my way to Easter Sunday service here. And I had gotten on the train early to come. If you remember, that was the time we had two services at the time, so we had to be here even earlier for setup. And I got onto the train, and there was this man, older gentleman, that had fallen he was in his Sunday best, and his cane was next to him, laying next to him on the train. And I, as I got on, we just locked eyes, and he said, please get help. And I looked around, like, this train has a ton of people on it. Like, how is no one helping him? How am I the first person that's, like, like actually attending to this? And I said, can I help you up? He said, no, no, don't move me. I, 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 this doesn't, something doesn't feel right. And I, I said, Okay. And so I tried to figure out, like, what to do. I'd never been in a situation. I was new. I sort of looked around, like, is there any, like, buttons I can hit on this thing? I'm like, no, the queue's too old for that. So I'm like, all right, what do I do? What do I do? And so I went up to this other person, and I said, hey, can you wait with this person while I go to the, the main cart where the conductor's at and let them know what's going on? And they said, no. I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And I was like, how about going to get the conductor? And they were like, Fine. So they got up, and they went to get the conductor. I waited with the person. Finally, a little bit later, we all stop. Police officers come on the train. They're examining the person, just check questions, asking how they're doing. And the paramedics are getting ready to arrive. And people start asking, can you just move them off of the car onto the station? We need to get going. And the officer said, no, we really need to wait for the paramedics to come fully assess this. People are huffing and puffing. They're really upset about this. Then the officers ask, did anybody see what happened? And I hear somebody say, don't you dare say anything, we'll be here longer. And then as the paramedics come and they're beginning to assess somebody, I hear somebody on the call, on their phone, updating somebody about why they're late. And they say, well, somebody had to be a good Samaritan. 
and they had to go and mess up the schedule for the day by going to get help for somebody. And I'm like, do you hear yourself? I was so lost, but then I, but then I, can't, I can't deny the fact that in my own soul, although I didn't speak it out, I kept looking at my clock. I kept thinking, I have a religious duty to get to this morning. It's Easter Sunday. I'm in my Sunday best, too. And, and, and this, is, this is getting a little messy. I'm down here on my knees with this man on the subway. And I'm thinking, this is taking a long time. I, why can't we just move him? I was thinking this. Why can't we just move him so everything can get moving along? Isn't this holding everything up? I was thinking it, but I wasn't saying it. And I was at war with myself. And I kept thinking to my, and when I heard that person say on the phone, someone had to be a good Samaritan, it was as if the spirit just said, what are you doing? <laughs> That's a compliment. And, 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 and you're being, you're inconvenienced. You think that this is an inconvenience, don't you? Because you're being a good Samaritan. But this, this honey, this is your religious duty today. Yeah. And I was like, okay, Jesus, I'm sorry. Um, and, I, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to send a message. Everyone at church would be super understanding. No one's going to like be upset about this, right? And it did take a little while. Um, I got found out that he had been sitting on the train for three stops. He had counted, and he'd been asking for help, and no one was listening. No one wanted to be stopped. No one wanted to be inconvenienced. And I will admit, there were definitely moments as the Spirit was prompting me where I had to think, do I want to be inconvenienced? Do I want to be brought into this? How is this going to derail my day? And something I had to listen deep within me that would speak to me beyond myself. And to me, I think this is the beauty of the, our faith is that it calls us beyond ourselves, beyond the own voice in our head that's often focused on self and calls us to look beyond ourselves. So I wonder, I wonder if the religious leaders in this story, they wrestled with the same questions and feelings that I was. I wonder if that day those two characters who were supposed to be conduits of God's grace, God, conduits of God's mercy and compassion, I wonder if they had zero of it because they were dealing with the same thoughts I was dealing with. But the character in this story, I also find it interesting that, that, that the one who does extend compassion is the one who often was overlooked. But more than that, I wonder if the Samaritan had compassion because he knew what it would be like to be ignored. He knew what it was like to be silenced. He knew what it was like to be deemed unclean, unwanted, undesirable because Samaritans were called bastards because they were mixed, they were mixed heritages and races. They weren't clean or pure blood. And this is often why they were disregarded by the Jewish community and considered unwanted, undesirable because they had stepped out from within their heritage. I wonder if they knew what it was like to be overlooked. I wonder if that empathy, that compassion, that mercy is what caused them to stop and go, let me be sensitive to this. Let me tend to this because I know what it's like to be overlooked. I wonder if compassion is what moved them. As we wrap up this message, I do want to give three illustrations of things that I think that we can do today to be the good Samaritans that Jesus is calling us to be in this story. The first thing is this, I want to say, use your voice to provide care and connection to resources. What I really loved about this story is that the Samaritan provides care to the extent that he can, but he doesn't overextend himself, right? He knows he can stop, he can bandage these wounds, but there's only so much care he can provide. 
And so he, while he provides care, he also connects this person to the resources that can provide the care beyond what he can. Sometimes we can't do it all. I mean, there is so much garbage happening in our world. There are so many things demanding our time and our attention and our work. There are so many needs of people in our own families, people within our church family, people that we encounter on the streets. And there's only so much we can do. We can do what we can, and the rest, we can connect people to resources and things that they need. In this story, he cares for him, but then he takes him to somebody who can care for him further, and he puts up the money to make sure that he, can, that that, that he gets the care that he needs. Sometimes as a pastor, um, I, I find that in the tradition that I grew up in, people, look, everyone went to the pastor for everything. And there were a lot of things the pastor was not qualified for. Like, they are not trained psychologists, therapists, counselors. And there are times when people come to the pastors at church, right, and they need help with something. And I'm like, okay, we can have like one or two meetings or sessions about this, but at the end of the day, like, you need further help. I can only offer you so much. And it would be a disservice for me to tell myself that, oh, no, I can, I can help you. You don't need that. You don't need someone who's got degrees and experience and some, some letters behind their name. We got Jesus and we're fine. Let's do this. And so there are times when I know, like, I can sit with you. I can bandage your wounds. I can help it from the, the bleeding out that's happening right now as we hold, I hold your hand and connect you to resources to places where you can care for your soul and your mind and your body in a way that I'm not going to be able to. And together, we can lead you towards a new place. And so I, I really want us to be a church that is just really attuned to connecting people to resources and not always having to just create resources because there's so many in this city. And to be sensitive and to realize that even if we don't have the answers, I bet there's somebody that does have the answers in the sport. So how can we connect people to that? Second thing to highlight is this. I want you to lean and lean to learn. It just, it's just, okay, so it should say learn, not lean. <laughs> um, to learn and advocate for the whole LGBTQIA alphabet. Hear this, hear this quote um, from Washington Post article by Evan Greer. Um, they say this, When Sylvia Rivera took the stage at 1973 rally that would later be seen as a predecessor of Pride, she faced boos from the crowd and was referred to as a man in a dress as she spoke about the daily brutality faced by trans and gender nonconforming people on the street, in prisons, and at the hands of police. Later that year, Rivera and Johnson, Marsha Johnson, Marsha P. Johnson, were banned from participating in the New York City Pride Parade. <laughs> this is for my queer folk in the room right now. Sometimes we're the worst. Sometimes we just think about our one little letter in that alphabet. And that's all we know and that's all we care about. Sometimes we discri discriminate and disgrace and, and, and oppress and ignore and push down other people in the alphabet in order to, be, to secure our place on the queer privilege pyramid. And all throughout history, we see this story, this narrative, where certain groups, they marginalize or they push aside or they silence certain groups of people because they're afraid they're going to hurt the greater cause that they're trying to zero in on. We saw this in the women's rights movement, excluding trans and black women. We see this in the LGBTQ movement that started right, right out of, uh, in, 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 in the 70s. I want you to go, if you do, if you do Google Sylvia, Sylvia Riviera, um, you can watch her YouTube video, this is recording, of her like at this rally of like trying to declare rights. And she gets up and she just like takes the mic and she's like speaking and she's like, yeah, we're, 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 we are advocating for gay and trans rights, but don't forget about your trans folks that are right here. We are fighting, we are being locked up, we are being brutalized. And as she's advocating, trying to get the same rights that gays and lesbians are fighting for, to just not be violently brutalized, 
literally, the gay and lesbian men in the, or men and women in the room are literally booing her. You could hardly hear her speaking, yelling at her. Folks, we gotta, even in our own house, we gotta do some work. We gotta learn the whole alphabet. Lila Watson says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time, but if you've come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's do the work together. All of our liberation is wound up in one another's. The last thing I'll give you to walk away with is I want you to be called, you are called to love queerly. What does queer mean again? You got it, good. Um, To love differently, love queerly. Um, I'm a part of an organization called Q Christian Fellowship. Uh, It's an organization that really helped me grow a lot, and I have the opportunity to now serve part-time as their development manager. And one of the things that I love about this organization is that several years ago, they changed their name. When I found them, they were called Gay Christian Network. And then they realized, like, no, we don't want to be here for gay people. Like, there's a whole bit of an alphabet. So now they're called Q Christian Fellowship, Q for questioning or Q for queer, however you want to interpret that. But uh, one of the things that I love about going every year to conference, and this is the largest gathering of LGBT Christians throughout the whole country. They gather once a year. They'll be in January in Albuquerque this year. Uh, a whole bunch of uh, forefronters are going. If you want to go, um, you can always go to the church website uh, at our calendar, and it's, all the information is on there. would love for, for folks to go and to be a part of that. But also, like, it's also for allies. Um, and one of the things that I've started to do those last couple of years is they have lots of different workshops. And so I'll go to different workshops about other parts of the alphabet that I don't know anything about, and I learn so much. And I get book recommendations that I can go back and I can read about asexual folks and trans folks and intersex folks. And I'm like, okay, like, this is a whole new world of, of just because I am one part of the alphabet doesn't mean I know the rest of the alphabet. Yeah. And sexuality and gender are very different things. So one shall not assume that. And so I invite us as a church to explore the rest of the alphabet, and sometimes loving queerly is to do our work. Is to do our work. Well, I, I finished with this quote by Ralph uh, R. Nolasco, who was um, one of my professors in seminary. He wrote a book called Parables of the Queer Soul. He says, in a nutshell, the story of the Good Samaritan is a story of neighborly love that is scandalous in its inclusivity, outrageous in its display, and concern and radical in its generosity. Very queer indeed. The scars we carry in our psyches and our bodies and our souls can and be and have been a balm to soothe the pain of others. This shared pain can be a wellspring of empathetic connection, engaged compassion to prod us along on the lifelong journey of healing and restoration. So church, as we continue to find our voices to speak up for the LGBT community and for those of us who have had our voices silenced within a closet, may you love queerly. May you use your voice and may you learn about the full spectrum of the alphabet. And more than that, may you connect people to the resources that will provide them care and may you sit with them and love them as they tend to their wounds until they turn to scars. And then as they turn to scars, may you give them a platform and a space and an ear to hear of their stories and their wounds so that more healing may come to them and may come to others. That we may be a people who love queerly and boldly. May we be known as a church like that. Amen? Amen. Amen. As we come to a time of communion, um, we come to a table remembering a life that was also brutally taken through violence, senseless violence. And we remember somebody who stands in solidarity of knows what it's like to be rejected and hurt and punished and forgotten, to be abandoned 
to be overlooked. And so we come to the table today in solidarity with somebody who suffers as we suffer and knows our suffering. Uh, the, 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 the bread is gluten-free. The juice is wine. The wine is juice. In solidarity with those who are in recovery, uh, as well as so our children can partake in this holy act. As you come today and receive communion, uh, if you are unable to walk forward or choose not to, feel free. Slip up your hand. And those who are serving communion after everyone has been served will come and they will serve you. Uh, as we want to make sure this table is accessible to all. Come and receive the body and blood of Christ. And may you be the body and blood of Christ in the world. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.